This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. This is the Portimao review show. And uh, don't be confused by the fact it's coming out probably about 48 hours after our Portimao preview show. But uh, Steve English, the flower of Scotland, Gordon Ritchie, and uh, Charlie Hiscott on today's pod as we look back to the Portimao round. And Gordo, this is an audio podcast. And unfortunately, people can't see you in what must only be described as a late 90s Scotland rugby jersey. I thought we made it clear that this is not the OnlyFans one, Gordo. This is the pre-pro review pod. Yeah, you know? for those for those who luckily enough can't see me, uh, I'm wearing a very, very old Scotland rugby top, which is all torn and ripped and basically used for painting in the house and working in the garden. And of course, I forgot I was, I was supposed to keep all the sartorial elegance and excellence of my two colleagues here. Um, I think Charlie's. I think Charlie's in bed drinking coffee. Frankly, and Steve I'm a, is. I'm wearing a nice Laura Ashley dress, actually. <laughs> Floral, my favourite. Well, <laughs> well, well, don't show any more of it on the screen, Charlie. And that would be very good for us. Uh, Steve is wearing some black nondescript thing with some kind of uh, colourless painting in the background. But you I mean, can pretty no much comments. guarantee you can't see what Steve's wearing, but you can pretty much guarantee it's got Alpine Styles written on it somewhere. Well, well, this is the the podcast sponsored by Fly Racing, Charlie. So I'm wearing my Fly Racing uh, hoodie oh, today. Oops. But um, I I will have to say that uh, for Gordo, we're seeing a little bit too much of him, a bit protruding from you there, Gordo. But uh, don't worry about that, Gordo. As I said, we're an audio only podcast. But uh, we got a lot to go through, really, because on today's pod, we've got a rental street sessions interview with Jake Gagne and uh, Jake obviously was racing in Portimao as a wild card for the attack performance team so that was quite exciting to see that so sat down with Jake for 10 minutes before the start of the weekend so we'll have a quick chat about his performances over the weekend as well but I do have to say obviously Charlie this is this is a pod that we're going to have to start off on uh, the, the Victor Steeman news because a big crash for Victor and as it is Victor's in a coma and uh, we're still awaiting any more news on him. But uh, Steeman, a really impressive rider this year in the 300 class. Four wins, three pole positions. He's got the record for most poles in a 300 rider's career as well. So he's been very impressive in the class. And I know for the three of us, for the Paddock Pass podcast, for the Superbike Paddock as a wider whole, that uh, everyone's thoughts are with Victor. But uh, really tough because he'd been in such great form in the run-up to Portimao. And the back of the field wins, double long lap penalties in Magni Court really showed just how good, good a rider he is. Yeah, I mean, in a class that's very hard to shine in, um, he really was starting to shine above all else. I mean, he was, I think it's fair to say, probably the only rider who could actually regularly break away from the pack. Um, he was finding such good form. Obviously, you know, he's a lovely, lovely guy, really nice, gently spoken Dutch guy. Um, and obviously had a massive effect on the paddock on on Saturday and, you know, coming off the back of Christy Rouse at Brown's Hatch, which, you know, everybody was already a little bit down. Um, it was really, really, you know, it's really, really bad news. Obviously, we haven't heard anything up to this point um, on his condition. But, um, you know, we do know that, that, that the situation is very serious for him. Yeah, and obviously the Chrissy Rice news. I worked with him at Eurosport for the Suzuka Eight Hours this year. Obviously, you've worked in BSB over the years, so you've got mm. to know him. And 
This is one of the, the big differences as well, because Gordo, for me and for you, a lot of the time, particularly in the 300 class, there's a little bit of separation between us and most of the riders because the focus of, of your job is mostly in the superbike class, a bit in the super sport class, and then what you can get in the 300 class. You just run out of hours in the day, really. But uh, what we saw from Steeman this year and over the course of the last years, think back to whenever he was on the KTM, he was very impressive at different times on a non-competitive bike. But when you look at what he's been able to do this year, it really did make everyone stand up, take notice. The talk is that uh, the, the plan is for him to be back on a 300 next year, moving into IDM and the super sport category as well. Obviously, with no idea what way anything's going to turn out for Victor, but when you look at the progress of a rider like that, that's what's always tough. Yes, um, I think Steeman was uh, an, is an example of the kind of rider that um, that class was made for, and a class is very difficult, as you said, to break away from. Uh, he was a guy that was shown he had it. Um, I think that's also to do with partly the team he's riding in, um, because obviously MTM has uh, you know been a very successful team in that category. Um, Benelux team, so he's got Belgians and Dutch people and stuff all around him. Um, so yeah, the the performances he's put in this year have been amazing. Sometimes, especially the ones where he got penalties and he he, he knuckled down and, and came back from them. Um, what's happened with the accidents? Incredibly unfortunate, as they say. We're still waiting on news. Um, it's it's racing's a very cruel sport. You know, this is not football. Um, this is something that every single rider, when they go out, takes a risk. Um, it makes it different from other sports. It makes it worse than other sports. Um, it's also one of the greatest sports ever, partly because people have to take a risk when they do it rather than uh, just go through some kind of physical motion. Um, and let's hope for the best. Let's hope for the best. Um, but yes, very popular guy because of his modesty, uh, everything else. But on the bike, quite amazing. Yeah, because Charlie, I was going to ask you about the difference for you compared to for me and Gordo. You've had to interview Steeman an awful mm, lot over the mm. course of this year. And that also has an impact because you build that relationship with a rider and obviously everyone in the paddock is hoping for the best. But I think especially whenever you've you've had that chance to to do a lot with a rider, it also has a big impact on you. Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, that class, obviously, it's full of um, all kinds of nationalities and um, you do tend to build more of a rapport with, you know, with the good English speakers, do you know what I mean? And obviously Victor was a really good English speaker or is a really good um, English speaker. So you do build up a little bit of a rapport with him over the old Park Ferme fence, so to speak, and occasionally on the grid. And, you know, he's a really, really nice guy and very intelligent. I think um, Gordo summed up by saying he was really modest. He was very cool. He wasn't, you know, there was no ego. He was doing really well. And, um, you know, let's just hope he's uh, on the road to recovery. Obviously enough, in the 300 class, we had an incident last year at Areth with Dean Berta Vinales. We've seen it in Talent Cup races, National 300 races. This is a, a class that is big pack races, Gordo. And that's a big challenge because inherently you then have great racing because you've got 20 riders together in a group. But you also have the inherent risks of having 20 riders together in a group where anyone makes a mistake. And Steeman made a mistake. He had a high side crash, fairly innocuous crash in, in some ways. But whenever you're in the middle of that pack in the early laps of a race, suddenly there's a lot of bikes around you. There is that inherent risk with the 300s. Uh, well, yes, any close racing. Um, it does. There are usually a lot more riders in the same uh, piece of real estate. 
in the 300 class than there are in any other classes. Um, but that is good racing and that is what we all turn up to watch. The problem is the consequence of that um, when something goes wrong can be quite nasty. Unfortunately, most of the really serious accidents that have happened in racing in the last few years that we can uh, unfortunately have to remember sometimes um, have been due to that. But it's riders and other riders colliding because you can't help it when you're racing that close. It's the difference between road riding and racing, one of the many differences is that the whole point of racing is to be close to the other guys because you can't get away from them because you're racing. But you have to be close to them to overtake them. Um, and when you've got the particular challenge in a class like 300 is that the bikes are limited in their pure performance. Therefore, the talented riders can't use their greater talent to get further away from the other people they do in the more powerful classes. You also don't want to have very young riders riding 1,000cc bikes that put up 200 horsepower because that's dangerous because of the consequences of their inexperience. So it's a difficult line to follow, but I would concur that in the smaller capacity classes um, with more riders learning, uh, all the circumstances you see in 300, um, it, it does make things a bit riskier. And to that end, after last year and Dean Bertavignalis, we reduced the field for qualifying by half virtually. There's now there's no longer two qualifying sessions. But when you put that many talented young riders on low capacity, low power motorcycles, they are going to ride together because a lot of them are all going to be able to reach the same level. Um, Steeman is a guy that could make a difference, as we spoke about earlier. But that's unusual. Um, most of the time it is. 5, 10, 15 people racing, even right up to the flag. Um, so it's an impossible situation to fix um, if you when you you want the racing to be that close and the riders have to race together to learn from each other in a small uh, young rider class like that. So it's a very, very difficult thing. It was a very good thing to have half the number of people trying to qualify. Um, but in a race like that, when there's 5, 10, 15 riders together, um, it's difficult to find a way to separate them out when the capacity of the bikes and the power of the bikes is limited. Yeah, obviously that kind of leads us into what we talked about in the previous pod, uh, episode 300, Charlie, where we were talking about where do you find those next riders? So many of them come through the Talent Cup and then there's a lot of riders like Steeman that was in Red Bull Rookies Cup. It never really worked out for him in Rookies, so he needed to find another path. He went down the 300 path. So you have some riders that were in Talent Cups, whether it's Rookies Cup, European Talent Cup, whatever it is, and they find a home on 300s. And then we've got a deeper field in 300s, which then also means we've got closer racing at the front. We've got so many riders able to battle it out. And it's that kind of cycle that just ensures really that you do have competitive fields all the way through even in an entry level class like 300s i, I sort of get it and I, I agree with everything that gordo said there but we do want close racing but i think supersport 300 is too close and it's too close because for a number of reasons the bikes aren't quick enough there isn't enough you know you know they don't have different tires they don't have you know there, are, there isn't enough choice for the talented skillful riders to, to set themselves ahead um, and Portimao, I thought we'd gone back to, I've got to be honest with you, the, the second race of Portimao, I thought we'd gone back to the, look like the old days where you've got a pack of 20 riders and, you know, you sit there, we all sat in the, I'm watching it in the media centre thinking, well, you know, we're, we're, we're one step away from this really big accident that we're all terrified that that's going to happen. 
And we are. They're jinking across, you know, they were pushing each other out onto the green, being squashed against the pit wall. I mean, you can't, I don't think you can blame the riders because that's what you want from them is, you know, aggression and, you know, the will to win. But I feel like they've got to accept that actually it's a nice idea to put them on low capacity bikes and, you know, try and keep the speed down. It's actually proving to be probably less safe than being on faster bikes. And actually, I think there are, I think there are wheels in motion for maybe not for next year, but for in a year or so that they will change that class to a slightly higher capacity. The other thing to remember as well is that Super Sport 300. Now, I don't know why this is, but it hasn't been overly successful in promoting riders up into Super Sport and, and, or Moto 2, for example, or anywhere else. Gonzalez is one. I can, you know, Steve, you, and you guys will be able to name a couple more, but there aren't, there's not a big flow of riders coming through Super Sport 300 and then launching their careers up onto the bigger bikes. And that's what that class is meant to do. So for me, that class definitely needs looking at and it needs some, needs some changes. Yeah, the the switch potentially to the super twin regs, like what you have over in Moto America, I think would be a, a great step. Have three hundreds as that class below that, and then you move to super twins, super sports, super bike. I think that the problem for me with three hundreds is, and you're dead right, Charlie. There's been a big issue over the years of what is it actually teaching riders. This year is probably the first year where we've seen multiple riders from three hundreds move on to a super sport bike and actually do quite well you know we've seen it obviously you're Manuel Gonzalez that came in and was immediately top 10 in super sports scoring points every race finishing every race challenging for race wins in his second year moves on to moto 2 that's the ideal but someone like Gonzalez was a very talented rider raced in the European Talent Cup and was noted for what he could do there just didn't have budget so he needed to find a home he went to 300s and the rest is history from. Mm. But this year we've had the likes of Bahattin Safoglu. You know, Bahattin's been up there inside the top six on the MV for the last three or four rounds. Huertas has done a good job running inside the top ten. Um, even someone like um, Booth Amos has kind of impressed people with what he's been able to, especially whenever he's jumped back onto a British super sport bike, pole last time out at Donington Park, and then he's racing this weekend at Brands as well. So that shows that you've been able to learn something. But then the other side of that coin as well is someone like Huertas, someone like Safoglu, someone like Gonzalez, even Booth Amos, a rider that came through, you know, Moto3 and CEV and then the World Championship. These were all riders that were probably going to be pretty good on a 600 anyway. So that's where, you know, the question of what you're learning on 300s really does pop up. So what do we know about what Alvaro Diaz is going to do next year then as champion? Well, Diaz, of course, the the world champion in the 300 class this weekend. He's been super impressive, super consistent all the way through the season. He's racing for the Arco University squad and it looks like he's going to move up to the super sport class with that team and uh, they're going to run Yamahas and Mm -hmm. he could well be in line to get Yamaha support as well. He's the first ever Blue Crew graduate that's gone on to win a world championship. So Yamaha are going to be quite keen to support that. Mm. Yeah, and I don't even think he was one of the ones that was going to have an absolutely guaranteed start at the beginning of the year in this championship. I think he maybe um, took someone else's slot or whatever. Um, so it's the, the 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 progression thing is what we're talking about here. What are people learning? How are they getting in? Um, yeah, I mean, it would be great to filter things out. It would be great to have the riders on bigger bikes again. Uh, the problem is that in a production-derived championship, 
the the mentality was a few years ago that oh Asia is the great growth market. Asia's got lots of three hundred cc or thereby super sport bikes are still selling in droves. So it was a kind of let's everybody would shouldn't be happy um, to have a, a a smaller capacity class that represents the world in a world championship. The problem is that we aren't really going to those Asian races. Um, it, the idea was right, but the reality we now have to look at quite hard again um, for lots of reasons one of which is rider safety the other one is mm. what are we teaching the young riders we've covered all that the other thing is are we actually going to the territories that we if you like justified one of the reasons to justify going 300s instead of maintaining 600s was that uh, we're going to go to those places and we'll get more and more truly global riders joining in well we've not got enough Asian races for that aspect of it to be thought of positively right now uh, unless there's going to be big changes in the next few years. That's another one of the reasons why we had 300 that didn't quite work out. I mean, it's actually been too successful, the 300 class, but only in terms of itself. Oversubscribed, um, obviously very close racing, and different manufacturers can win. There's lots of good things to say about it, but as you say, that we're talking about the safety of it now and the, and the what do we do next. Um, yeah, there's questions to be asked, and uh, as we've indicated people are talking about it now because there have been too many incidents. Obviously there's an awful lot more to talk about from Portimao as well so we're going to take a quick break on the podcast and when we come back we're going to dive into some of the big superbike news. Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars are premium race spec clip-ons available in nine different options, two different offsets and six different diameters all developed in collaboration with top-level race teams. Use the Fit My Bike tool on Renthal.com to find the correct fitment for your bike. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. Charlie, um, obviously this weekend we saw Portimao where once again we saw Top Rack just at his best. But uh, what was your big takeaway from this weekend? Well, if I'm honest with you, it was the amount of uh, British and Irish and Northern Irish fans that were there. It was amazing. I didn't really didn't realize quite how many people go to that round. It was, I thought, yeah, for me, the big takeaway was the fans. Actually, it was really nice. I spoke to a lot of people over the weekend and down in Portimao as well. And uh, it was really nice. There were so many nice people there. A lot of them obviously there for Jonathan, but lots of them are just there because it's a nice place to go and they have a long weekend there and have a really good time. And there was quite a decent crowd there, I thought. Yeah, guaranteed sunshine, bit of golf in the build-up. I thought Portobello was perfect. Gordo, I came to Charlie first just for alphabetical order reasons there, but what was your big takeaway from the weekend? What, what was the big talking point for you? Well, for a championship that's been so close at the in the, the big capacity class, the headline class, we are now getting towards the end of it and, it, and Alvaro's moving away. Um, he didn't at the weekend. He got slightly pegged back by, I think, three points. Um, which is not enough for us to get to the end of the championship, probably. But I think the thing was the how much talk there was about relative performance again. Everything from super concession rules to weight balancing, um, reducing revs of the Ducati, increasing revs for everybody else, allowing people to make modifications to be more competitive. We have arrived back in the days of performance equalisation, or at least the, the thought that whatever it takes, that's what we're going to have to do. We touched on that in the preview. Um, ultimately, that to me was the takeaway, was how much people were talking about we need to balance this class again. 
after years of getting it to a very good level. Um, the combination of Alvaro, his weight, the power of his bike, the revs his bike puts out, is now putting races beyond the capability of other riders to win. That said, top right won two races, you know. So even in a track that we all thought, oh, we could be on for a triple Ducati win here, it didn't turn out like that. But someone, I think like Johnny, was absolutely at his limit and rode some of the best races he's done and couldn't get near a win. Just nowhere near. So maybe something needs to happen for that bike. And we are now talking about bike by bike by bike. The the idea of having all the rules for all the bikes being all the same doesn't work when you've got bikes that are fundamentally different to start with, different ages, different technical ideas from a manufacturer. We have to balance this production-based championship so that every manufacturer can rock up and go, you know what, if my bike isn't perfect for this racing lark, but it's a brilliant road bike and we're happy with it, I want to be able to make some changes. What those changes are um, will be up to the powers that be, but I think at the moment there is a general understanding, and that's what I took away from the weekend, that mm, maybe we need to visit this again. Without punishing people, we maybe need to liberate other people a little bit if we want to have all manufacturers there. And we know there are certain things under uh, immediately happen. We know that now. You know, there's, there are things that are happening now and other things that will probably happen next year or the year after to get us back there. Um, but that was mine. From an insider's point of view, that's what people were talking about. Yeah, and certainly for BMW and Honda, it does look like there's going to be some pretty decent upgrades that they're going to be able to make to their bikes to be able to give them something more from the chassis side. But just to go to the Ducati side, Gordo, because... This weekend, again, just showed it. And anyone that watched the race and still wants to be in complete denial about Ducati and Bautista, all they had to do was look at Ray getting overtaken before they came over the hill on the start-finish straight. Because once they were third, fourth, fifth gear, there was just nothing you could do against Alvaro. You had at times where you were four tenths clear coming onto the pit straight, and then you're behind into turn one. It was only Toprak's sheer willpower that made him win the Super Bowl race. And for me, that was the best I've ever seen Top Rack because he had no right to win that race whatsoever. But when you look at all that, I found it really, I found it comical whenever you had Ducati engineers and Bautista both saying, you know what, we, we shouldn't have a, a minimum wage, a minimum weight limit in the class because that would make this bike much more dangerous. If it crashes, it will carry further into a gravel trap, this, that, and the other. Most of the gravel traps are made for MotoGP bikes. So they're more than capable of dealing with a little bit of extra room for a heavier Ducati. There's got to be something that they can do because we've had really great racing and a great championship battle this way to a certain point. But now we're going to go to Argentina. We've got Phillip Island at the end of the year as well. Probably Indonesia as well could be really strong for Ducati. So there's where a tight championship battle like we had for the start of the season is long gone. And it's all well and good to talk about, you know, Rinaldi can't do this, but Bassani can't do that. Philip Ertel can't do this. You know, it's only Bautista winning. It was only Ray winning on a Kawasaki whenever they pegged that bike back as well. They need to do something about the Ducati because like it was just it was just ridiculous at certain stages this weekend. They're due to um the, the rev limit gets looked up after every Oh, sorry, Gordo, after every three rounds. So they're due to look at the rev limit now after round nine. But I can't see them actually taking revs off the Ducati because, like you said, 
Alfa Romeo one one race in Portimao, and Rinaldi and Bassani and Ertel aren't also in third, you know, second, third, and fourth. So I can't see how they can change that until maybe next year. I think it'd be unfair, actually, if they suddenly turn around and put out. You know, what I mean, can you can you imagine? <laughs> I don't see there being a change between now and the end of the season, but I think like it's definitely something that needs to be looked at. And even if it's down the road of what they do in the super sport class and 300s where every individual bike is dynoed and they're all put on to a balancing and it's not done based solely on your manufacturer. You know, there's lot, there's lots of different things that could be done, but I don't know. It, it seems when you looked at what, what we were looking at at the weekend of top rack riding as well as anyone's ever ridden a super bike and still struggling, I th- thought it's just something that needs to be looked at again. I'm not sure about that. Actually, to be honest with you, I think that the um, uh, maybe the rev cap would be a better way to go. Only because just talking to people like um, Christoph Gio this year and uh, other people saying that actually, you know, uh, sticking weight on the bike is a is a real disadvantage to a smaller rider. So you're kind of like we're we're trying to work out. I mean, to me at the moment, it looks like Ducati have what I would described as an unfair advantage in that top rack's good on the brakes, Jonathan Bikes turns really well, but Alvaro's advantage of being able to overtake on a whim is unfair because he doesn't, have, you know, the, <laughs> I just see that as unfair. So for me, if you go and whack a load of ballast on Alvaro's bike, I, I get why he, want, he rails against that because then that makes his bike very, very different to what Jonathan and top rack have to do with their bikes. So for me, and I don't know this, I'm thinking out loud now, I think that, that, that the rev limit is, is the thing to be fiddling about with. You say that it would make his bike very different. That just depends on what they actually make as the minimum, minimum weight limit. Because mm. as it is right now, the bike and rider combination for Alvaro compared to them is considerably less because he's smaller, mm. he's a lighter rider, this, that and the other. Yeah. But I kind of look at what we saw. Race 1 I thought was a really good example of it because... Bautista is a better rider than Rinaldi and Bassani and Ertel and Luca Bernardi because there's a reason why whenever he was 13, he was fast-tracked through Spanish championships, Grand Prix classes. He's been trained along those routes and he's a fantastic rider. He always has been the whole way through his career. It didn't work out for him in the MotoGP class, but 125s, 250s, you could see how special he is. He's got that baseline ability, the experience, this, that, and the other. So he's able to take full advantage of this Ducati. He couldn't, he, he, he didn't make a difference with the Honda. You saw what that was like last year. But with this bike and package, he can make a pretty big difference. I thought on Saturday what we saw was a really good example of the difference between the Ducati and some of the other bikes because Axel Bassani in his battle with Lowe's, you saw that he was just able to whack open the power, drive around the outside, not really have to hit his apexes, he was he was riding pretty untidily and still able to hold off another rider. And I think that that was a good example of the difference between those bikes a little bit further down the order rather than just always looking at the Bautista and versus Ray and Razgadioglu kind of battle. Because all the way through this season, we have tended to see the second Ducati has won its battle with the second Yamaha or the second Kawasaki or, you know, the, the first BMW or Honda rider, really. Lowe's was a perfect example. In two races at the weekend, they said, look, I could have beat the other guy, but I just couldn't live with him. 
coming out the corner and going down the straight. He was losing point four every lap, but he felt his setup, his ability to ride to ride the bike, the way his tyres were, everything. He was in. He felt he could have got another position in both of those races if it wasn't for that one particular aspect of uh, performance. Um, I, I think we're at the stage of this year. Probably nothing will happen. But what we need to do, I think now. And again, we don't like doing it because it's a production-based series and Ducati have built an incredible bike based on the rules that they were given, is to allow other people to make modifications to their bike to be able to to, to catch up. We know that the Kawasaki can rev a lot higher than it is now um, with the oldest engine architecture and design of the whole field and the most conventional bike, really. Um, and look at what can be done if you're Jonathan and now Alex, which is quite heartening. That there's obviously still quite a lot left in the Kawasaki. If you've got Alex up there, Harry and quite consistently now, now he's on a, a much happier setup for him. But they need revs to make power to hold on to gears to at least stay in some degree of contention. Um, it might be different for Yamaha. What would you give Toprak more to let him, uh, you know, stay with Bautista in the straight? Um, and he's considerably heavier than him as well, so you need to let him have more revs. So yes, I think that, that balancing the championship by rules has been very successful. I've written and spoken about it quite a lot, but I think we're past that stage now. I think that there is now a, a, an issue, specific issue, that is pre- preventing the top three riders in the world having a completely level playing field in real races. And the, the lap time doesn't matter. The lap with Jonathan smashed the lap record, you know, uh, fastest lap in the race, etc. Um, it's not one lap time, it's how you go racing. And that's what's the, the difficulty now. Uh, earlier in the year, you could make up for it certain places, but it doesn't seem to be happening anymore. That's the, That, to me, is a big issue. I think that's dead on. I think what Gordo said is absolutely spot on. And, and like you said, I think that that's that's probably the best approach is to is to you know they're talking about it with you know concessions and super concessions with Honda and uh, BMW. So maybe it's time to make super concessions for Kawasaki and Yamaha. I really don't want to punish Ducati for doing a good job. They've been trying to win the championship for a long time. They're in a position of doing it because they've done everything they needed to after lots of disappointments. I don't want to pull back. I, I, you know, philosophically fairness, whatever you want to call it, I don't want to pull those guys back. But if there's something left in the other bikes, we'll let them go a bit more. You know, that that's to me that's the way forward. Is to let everybody else okay, well we're not running completely production bikes. Um we've been more stock than we have been for in the early days of the championship. We're much more stock now. But that means you've got more leeway to let people put on more racing parts and whatever it needs and and I, and I think now it is literally a case of okay guys 500 revs more you don't need to change the engine you don't need to change the components there's not a cost there I think the engine and the Kawasaki can handle more because that's what it, it used to have more um, when we were still on the days of limited engines and then they took it off so that to me is an easy fix it's just when you do it you're doing it now you're doing it next year uh, I think it's also worth also worth adding looking at the bigger picture which is you know, the way the world, the financial situation is in the world at the moment is actually with World Superbikes suddenly becoming so successful in the last two years, obviously last year with Jonathan and Top Rack, and now this year with the three of them at the start of the year, and the way that be, that MotoGP is going. MotoGP is definitely struggling, and okay, they're having a, all three classes are doing really well this year, the championship's tight, but they're all saying it's getting harder, the races are getting less interesting, overtaking is getting harder, 
MotoGP also needs to look at look at what's going on there. But in the meantime, World Superbikes has had as the you know we've all worked on this championship for a long time, and the last two years have been amazing, haven't they? They've been brilliant because you kind of feel like the whole motorsport industry suddenly is looking at the championship that we all work on, having had years of Jonathan dominating. It's now really at the forefront of motorcycle racing. And I hope Dorna understand that, that actually they have to do everything to keep the show alive. It's all, you can sit there and, you know, we hear a lot of people on Twitter saying, you know, we shouldn't be fiddling about with this. It's motorbike racing and the purists want this and that. It's a flipping business. It has to make money. It has to have popularity. It has to have people watching it. There's a lot of stuff going on in the TV world at the moment with rights and stuff like that. And I tell you what, you want World Superbikes being the best it can possibly be. It's so important, I think, in the current climate, you know. The big thing with it is, like, when you look at last year, we had Reading on the Ducati, and we had all three bikes probably a little bit closer matched because Scott didn't have that big... He still had an advantage in the straights because there was a lot of times whenever he was able to punch out of corners really well, but he didn't have as pronounced an advantage as Alvaro has right now. And that's because Scott's a lot heavier. Scott's one of the heaviest riders on the grid just because he's over six foot tall. Bautista's one of the lightest riders because he's one of the smallest. And it's one of those situations where that's taken away probably one of the one of the big things that caused the scrap last year between all top three riders, as it is right now, Toprak and Johnny are mostly united because they know what they're facing. But Gordo, just to go back to the Kawasaki as well, because what I always find interesting about the the rev limits and the 500 revs for Kawasaki is that it's not so much how much more top speed this would give Kawa. It's almost that from a rider's perspective, Ray would be able to to save on X amount of gear shifts through a lap. The you know the change in how he could ride the bike could be quite different. He wouldn't have to be as aggressive because when we look at him right now, you see a rider that's on the ragged edge at all the time. A lot of the time. You know, he has to make moves that are very on the limit because he doesn't have anything else underneath him. And I think that if this is any other rider, you kind of look at it and you say, well, maybe that's an issue for Kawasaki, this, that, and the other. But you are looking at a six times world champion, the best superbike rider we've ever seen. So we know that it's not a rider issue. It's very easy to look at it and say, you know, they could do with something on the bike because Ray should be able to make that difference. But let's remember, we're not talking about the kind of bike that Kawasaki or Yamaha or Honda or BMW or Ducati can build. It's what they're allowed to go racing with. This, to me, it's not a it's not a oh a machinery limit. It's a a limit that's been put on the bike to make things more competitive. Um, we could have had a five hundred rev higher Kawasaki, but they didn't do enough in the eyes of the FIM, who ultimately rule everything. Um, to say, yes, that's a new homologation. So they weren't allowed to have a new homologation engine. Um, but BMW were that year because BMW changed enough things to let them do it to be more competitive. Um, so we're not talking about what Kawasaki can do. I think we're talking, or, or any other manufacturers, I think it's what they're being allowed to do uh, is where the logjam is now. Whether or not you agree that, that they should be allowed to do that is that's fine. It's up to people and opinions and justification. We've seen that they're not reaching the balance and real intervention points enough to let them do anything about it at the minute. Um, but it is affecting things. What Charlie said about it being a sport and entertainment is, is absolutely correct. But all I would want to see is a level playing field. As long as we don't go down changing the bikes too much from the original, and I, I am a big fan of taking a lot of the technology back 
from where we were going, when you have a four-stroke MotoGP class, you don't need to even try and chase it in, in World Superbike. What you do have to do, as Charlie says, is have a product which is you don't know who's going to win this week. You you know who the top riders are, so you can build a war of personalities. Um, I think all the... You don't have to fundamentally change anything about it. You just have to give people a bit more liberation, which they are doing for the, the manufacturers coming behind. But I think even through the last three, four races, we've seen that change to be the riders who were competing for a World Championship and now are still arithmetically in contention for a World Championship, but can aren't anymore. Um, and, and I think everybody agrees that's all down to one performance thing. So they can... They've got a chance, as you say, after the, this number of rounds to look at the rules again. There is the God Clause where they can do what they want. They can ultimately override anything that's in the rule book by saying, but we've decided we're going to do it differently. If you read the rules, that's what it says. Um, they can make a change to those balancing rules anytime, even though they're all written down. I wouldn't want to, as I say, I really just don't want to punish Ducati for what they're doing. And here's the thing. If you were, if you were none of us, but you were the boss of the whole thing, looking at it saying, what am I going to do? And you had unlimited freedom to do it. You'd look at it and think, well, I want to have a, a competitive championship. I've got all the tools here to do it. Um, what's holding me back? Fairness, everything else. But you you need to have something that you can, that everybody lines up thinks fair. So the manufacturers have got to think it's fair. But you, if you were the, if you're now in charge of the whole thing, you'd look at it and go, well, we had Kawasaki winning two years ago with one rider we had Yamaha winning last year with another rider it might be in the overall interest of the championship for another manufacturer and another rider to win it this year so you know it looks that way if you're if you were a betting man you would be putting your money on the red bike um maybe next year is enough for the changes because it's going to take an awful lot no matter what you do for the other guys to for the one guy out front to slip up, especially because the guys behind them are fighting each other. It's not just one rider. They're taking points off each other, or they will be able to. So maybe we're talking about this this year, but it's anything like that might happen next year. I think it is a situation where you're looking at it for next year because Ducati and Bautista have done the best job this year. They should win the World Championship. And in all likelihood, they will win the World Championship. But you don't want to see... A repeat. Well, I don't want to see a repeat of that into the future because it's too pronounced an advantage that is a, a free advantage. Like Charlie, you talked about it earlier on about you know the uh, the one area where you see that from Bautista. Now, if you change that bike fundamentally, then Bautista has to change how he rides. He was still able to win a lot of races in 2019. Even on the Honda, he was able to battle for a few podiums. You know, he's a He's a great rider, so he'll be able to figure some way around it. But it'll be interesting to see how that changes what happens in that battle at the front. As it is, before we take our ad break, I'm going to ask you both for a one-word answer. Does the championship go down to the last round, Gordo? Uh, that, that was my word. Uh, <laughs> what about you, Charlie? Can you translate that into English for us, Steve? What does that mean, from Scottish to English? Uh, well, that... That was that was just uh, that was just Celtic for I really don't want to commit to an answer right now. What about you, Charlie? <laughs> that wasn't even human for anything. Never mind Celtic. No, that, genuinely, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I think we're looking at no because there's enough points. If it's just a couple here and there to 
end up going to Australia. I'd, I, I would love us to go to Australia, even if it was a foregone conclusion, leaving Indonesia. I'd love it because otherwise it's a dead rubber, isn't it? As people call it. You know, I don't, I don't like that. I don't want it. I want it to go all the way, even if it's two points that he needs to collect in Australia, because at least then we can have a party at the last round. It's always better when you've had a great, cha- and this has been a great championship. It's been, it's been such a boost for everybody. Sorry, that was a hundred <laughs> words. I apologise. Which bit of one word didn't you understand? <laughs> I know, That's the I know, typical Gordon Ritchie response sorry. to a word count. I'm I sure know. David Emmett's found that with you as well. But just when you look at that as well, though, Charlie, like Gordo's point there is about taking it to the last round, no matter what, even if it's only searching for a point or two points. In the 300 class this weekend, there was still a question mark about Diaz, you know, up until race one, when Steeman crashes, then Diaz becomes the world champion. But there was a question mark of what happens if, and that is all anyone really wants. Well, that's that's what the showdown's for, isn't it? That's what the showdown is. It guarantees that thing. Yeah, it gar- it guarantees it to go down to that last round. Whether it goes down to the last race is a different story, but down to the last round. Well, going by what we've said on this podcast already, nobody cares what happens as long as it goes down to the last round. It's obviously so important in BSB that that's why they have the showdown. We've all just sort of kind of agreed that actually they have to do whatever they have to do to make it a good show for people to watch because we need the sponsors and the fans and all the stuff that goes with it. So, so I would never show down in a world championship. I'm sorry. Is the, is the good show, is the good show dependent on the championship point situation or the racing that you get? Because there's been times this season when I, 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 there's been times this year, I couldn't care less about the championship because we've seen three great riders knocking three different colours out of each other. Whereas in Portimao, for the Super Bowl race, we certainly saw that and it was tremendous. And I think it also went to such a such an extent from Top Rack that it showed just how good he is that he could win that race. But in a 20-lap race on Sunday afternoon, he didn't have a chance of doing that. And I think that's where you need to have that little bit of a balance where it's for race by race for me is more important than just looking at a championship points table. Because there's been a lot of times whenever you look at People talk about great championship battles and the racing through the season has been quite poor. You know, it's 20 years since Imola 2002 and other than Imola, there weren't really that many races where Edwards and Bayless were actually quite close to each other on track. So I don't want a repeat of that where we then look back fondly at a championship table. I wonder where we're looking back at great races all the way through. Well, I can help with that actually because there's a simple way. Like I, I, I think... I don't know, but I think the championship is going to be decided before we get to Phillip Island. But it's a very easy fix to change that. And that is you don't have races for half points. It does my head in. I, I, literally, it annoys me so badly that you go out, you send all the riders out there. They have a proper race. Who cares how many flipping laps it is? You don't get, I, I don't understand the correlation between the amount of laps and the amount of points. They're going out there for a race. A, a, you know, a full point sprint race. Brilliant. Then you've got 75 points available for a weekend. That will help the situation that we're in now. So when we go to Phillip Island, if there were 75 points on offer, like you said, just that one point that Stamen needed, um, that um, Diaz needed, that kept things open. It keeps, it keeps the thing going, the showdown, regardless of whether you like it or don't like it. When you arrive at Brands Hatch next weekend, when I go to Brands Hatch next weekend, 
the championship's on. Anything can happen. And that's what we pay our money for. That's why we go to bike racing, because that's what we want. We want to see these things, you know, we want to see war on the track and we want to see them fighting for championships. And I'm sorry, but it really annoys me. But half points races are the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of in my life. I, I have to say from from our perspective, because me and Gordo, obviously, before you started joining us on the pod, we would have talked about this back in 2019. And for me, one of the big things was I'd love to see the Super Bowl race just determine your outright grid position for race two. No points, just grid positions, you know. And if you make a mistake... The more points... Sorry to interrupt you, Steve-O. The more points you have, the more chance for things to swing. Have a double Have a double point. Have a bonanza, a gala race. I can yeah? understand that. Let's have, a, let's have a super race. Short, 10-lap race, yeah? But it's 50 points for a win. 45, you know, the, the bigger the points, <laughs> right? The more swings you can have, right? And actually, the one thing that's, that's sort of happening is that consistency is becoming the key to, to winning these championships now. And all racing championships it's not falling off the guys in MotoGP have been talking about it a lot recently in Moto2 and in Moto3 saying if you want to win a championship it's about finishing races yeah you can't make mistakes and you can't have offs and actually the more points you've got that would make perfect sense to me that actually you know the more points you've got the more chance of a swing you have and the more chance you've got of getting to a final round and the show being alive no brain Charlie. double points double points Charlie, short race and a car you win a car double points Hey, you're only do looking you think, for cars to be you awarded because you wrote your car off, Charlie. <laughs> Charlie, Charlie, uh, what, what are we going on next? What, what enhancements are we going on next? Are we going to be able to drop two bad rounds so that things are even closer towards the end? We used to do that. Grand Prix racing used to do that a lot. You would be an 11-round championship, but you could drop your two worst results so that it was closer to the end. The trouble was at that time, Agostini was riding and he still won them all anyway. But... You could do that and say, oh, well, then everybody's crash is taken away. And if you're a very consistent rider and you don't fall off in any races or lose any point scores, you've still got to throw away two point, two, two races worth of points that you've already earned. Mm. And if you give more points, it doesn't mean that the guy who's out running in front, he might win all three of those races and he's even further ahead. It's all the same. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you score the points as long as it's fair. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, super points yeah, but scores, it's not, hold on, it's fine. It's you not know? fair. But this is the problem where it's not fair. So actually having more points, I, I feel like it's a bit of a, a counter to things like, well, Alvarez is running away with it now because he's got an unfair advantage. More points when Top Rack skins two races back. As you said, Steve-O, Top Rack had no right winning that first race on Saturday. But when he does, it should be, you know, you should get really well rewarded for it. And the Super Bowl race is one of those things that plays into Top Rack's hands and Jonathan's hands. They should get full points for it. Why would you get half points? Why? I don't get it. Or maybe do that do that towards the end of the year. Maybe from your point of view, maybe you would give more points for the last few races then. Rather than, you know, so you can catch up if you if you yeah. use a bad start and you can make up a bit more, then you can tractor away. Look, we don't want it. We don't really want the sort of. We don't want to make a contrived championship. I totally get it, right? I, no. I actually really like the showdown. I think it works really well in BSB. I think it's a really good idea. But at the same time, nobody really wants to have a contrived end to the season. But I do think that half race thing. I, do you know what? I just feel. You top, do you look at the effort the top back and Jonathan put into that middle race? It's why would you get half points for it? 
I don't. If someone tells me why, I'll understand it. But I don't get twelve points for a win. Two points. I mean, Top right went through all that thing. He hung himself on the line in that Super Bowl race, and he makes two points back up on Alvaro. It, five points is great. Do you know what I mean? I think twenty-five for a win. The point system is fantastic. It's just that little race being half points. I think I don't really get it. You could give uh, the same points differential for the Super Sport 10 lapper race without making the full points if you've got a the, the obvious reason why you don't get the same is because you're only racing half distance but you could make the differential between first, second, third and maybe only score points down to fifth place rather than all the way down to what are we ninth, tenth I can't remember but you, you make you make the differential 15 so if you win you get 15 points or if you win you get uh, 12 points but instead of getting uh, nine there would be a bigger differential down the way. Oh, we're, we're getting it. We're getting it. Trigonometry set out the day, aren't we? What about at the end of the weekend, right? The rider who's nicest to the media gets five championship points. The one that's nicest to us lot, we can decide and they can give us the points. And actually, I do need a new car. <laughs> Unfortunately for us, though, we're going to have to transition into an ad break, boys. So when we come back afterwards, we've got a Rental Street Sessions interview with Jake Gagne, and we'll also sum up the rest of the Portimao weekend. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen-compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Rental Street and Fly Racing. On this segment of the pod, we've also got an interview with Jake Gagne. So before we kick into that and finish off the show, Gordo, I just wanted to ask you, what was your thoughts on Gagne? Because for me, I think this just gave a really good illustration to a lot of fans, especially over in America, just how tough it is to jump into World Championship racing. This was the same as what we've seen whenever BSB riders have come in this season as wildcards at Donington Park. It's tough to come in and even just score a point. I thought that for Gagne and the attack racing squad, I thought they did actually a really good job because they went to a track they'd never been to before, tires they'd never used before, and they were able to come in. Gagne scored a point in race two and was fine. He didn't set the world alight, but he didn't do a particularly bad job either. I think Gagne had a, um, had a good weekend. It's very difficult to come in especially towards the end of the championship when everybody's got used to their all the riders have had to change bikes and stuff we're towards the end of the championship now in a place that we go all the time uh, even for testing in the winter so I think Portimao was a tough place to come and sit for several reasons um, out with anything that um, Gagne and his team had to face um, I think they did fine I, I, I wasn't expecting them to do anything spectacular I wasn't expecting them to be bad I think he, he performed more or less where I expected them to. When you look at the people around them, um, and especially anybody behind them, you might be asking more questions of them than you would be a Jake. So, um, no, and he's a very popular guy. He's a good guy. He obviously came to Superbike when he was too young, not experienced enough. It was difficult for him then. He walked around, as far as I could see, a weekend with a, pretty much a smile on his face. He gave it his best. His team 
had a good chance to see the level. I think we're back to the level thing we spoke. I think we spoke quite a lot in the preview about level, national championship to world championship level. And I do think that everybody who's not up close and personal in World Superbike doesn't quite appreciate how high the level is now. And it's been pushed even higher by the top three guys. But that means that the people behind them have to uh, fight for every point more than they have in the past. And there's more good bikes with... If you've got a good crew chief and a good rider and a good electronics person, all the material's there for you now, maybe in a way that has never existed in the Superbike World Championship before. I mean, literally. you If you turn up with a good team now, you can do well. There is no reason why you can't, except the 15 other people that have got a good setup, and if they do well, are going to potentially beat you. So Ganyi came into that shark-infested waters, and I think he swam pretty well. He did fine. Um, but it takes a lot to be successful in, in World Superbike, even at the level well behind those of the, the, the leading riders. It's rock hard. Believe me, it's rock hard. And I think the BSB, Motor America, anybody can see that. But if I was him, I'd be dreaming. Why not? Why not? A couple of seasons, he could be right in amongst it as well. Go get Gerloff. It's possible. Yeah, I think for me, like the biggest thing was Portimao was also a track that naturally extends the pack. This is a track where, you know, in, in a super polo session, a second splits much less of the field than it does if we were at somewhere like Hareth or Donington or this, that and the other. So then you naturally have it where the field spreads out a lot more. This doesn't make it an ideal place to come for a weekend like this to give the perception of looking more competitive in the field. This for me, was probably the, the biggest issue for Attack coming to a brand new place like this. But they did a much better job than Yart Yamaha, who are used to coming in as wild cards, used to racing, obviously, in the Endurance World Championship. So different bike for them compared to a World Superbike spec bike. But I thought that for Attack, they came in, they did a good job. Gagne didn't make any mistakes all weekend, ticked the boxes, scored a point. You know, in the preview show, we talked a bit about maybe they could get a top 12 even higher than that, potentially, but it didn't play out that way. And that was probably the way it was always going to go. But Charlie, I know you were down quite a bit with Jake at different times over the weekend. Yeah, well, I think um, Gordo absolutely nailed it then. And Jake said it himself. He said, can't can't misunderstand, you know, you can't um, misjudge how high the level is. And he said, particularly in the last couple of years, the level has moved on. And actually, I hear that from riders quite often, actually, is that um, Xavi Forres saying, you know, the, the level is moving forward quite quite hard. So you miss out a year or two. It, you know, by the time you come back, it's all changed. And that was what Gagne said, was that, you know, I think he was pretty happy with the way things went. He, like you said, he ticked all the boxes. He didn't make any mistakes. But I think that he also probably set his goal slightly higher from physical f- finishing positions. Um, but suddenly realised, like exactly like Gordo said, it's a flipping, you know, it's a nightmare in that championship. You want to get stuck in there, you are going to have to really... The, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, and I asked Paul Denning about it actually, was about the comparison between Jake Gagne coming in, you know, with data, with his bike, and Taz 
Mackenzie coming in, you know, riding a brand new bike that he'd never sat on before, you know, with, you know, with a lot of very complicated tasks for Taz and Peter Hickman at the same time, you know, to, to come in. And we talked about that a lot during Donington. And actually, Paul sort of seemed to come down on the side of the transition in tyres that actually Jake, you know, probably would have found that the transition. When, when I spoke to Jake on Thursday, he was like, oh, no, you know, it's just Dunlops and Brellies. They're all rubber tyres and, you know, they're all the same thing. So you get a hang of it. But actually, talking to Paul about it, he sort of seemed to think that actually, you know what, you know, Taz did have to learn a new bike and data and stuff like that. And his task was probably the same as Gagne coming across and coming from Dunlops to thing. And actually, they had, they were finishing in around about the same sort of place. So I thought it was in, it was an interesting experiment to see how Jake compared against Taz. And they were the same. They were pretty similar. Yeah, I have to say one thing before I throw to Gordo, just because you've mentioned PD, I have to say it, I went playing paddle tennis with Denning on Thursday night. I've never seen anyone more aggressive about anything on any sports really? environment than Paul Denning playing tennis. It was terrifying, to be quite honest. I've, I've never experienced fear like seeing Denning come up to the net and all he wants to do is drill a ball down the middle of your throat. And it was... Absolutely fantastic to see. Uh, he was showing me videos of him. Obviously, Paul is racing in the, I think it's Radicals he's racing, uh, sort of yeah. downforced, high, you know, pretty quick um, sports car that he's got involved in. And he was showing me some of his onboards. Also, very aggressive. Very aggressive, actually. Yes. PD still, you know. And then there was the motocross thing where obviously he looped it off the line. I'm in the guy, obviously. Can't let some things lie. He's he's actually, he is not mellowing. I'll be honest, I've gone golfing with PD. And again, Gordo, you played with him that day. Again, a very aggressive <laughs> golfer. It's, it, it's almost, Paul, as if he's an aggressive man. But I have to say, a great man as well. And one that's done a fantastic job with Yamaha over the last few years. When you look at the progress Crescent Racing have made from when they switched from Suzuki to be the factory Yamaha team, step by step, year by year, they've just being able to bring in the right people in the right places and keep the same environment. It doesn't matter who's come in. It's still Crescent. You know, there's still that same feeling in the pit box. I, I, I think that resonates with the whole team because, um, you know, I think part of the success that they had last year was because the team is functioning so well now. There's a really good atmosphere in their box and it functions so well. Even, you know, the PR side of it, everything, the marketing side of it, those guys are all working, pointing in the same direction. There's a real community spirit in that team. You don't see any, there's not, you know, Andrew Pitt, Phil Marin, they get along. Each side of the team, are re it's really gelled well and really harmonious in that team and I do mean from top to bottom so I think that's part of it and obviously Paul is a, you know, at the risk of um, inflating Paul's ego big part of it Yeah I, I think the thing about Crescent that's particularly impressive is not just the turnaround because they've had their high points and low points in racing um, obviously changing manufacturers as you touched on there Steve but they are genuine the whole Yamaha factory effort is actually run from two different countries in Europe with very different cultures very different everything. So there's the Italian side, the engineering side, etc. And then there's the team running it. And they still manage to get through all those potential pitfalls because we've seen it not quite happen with other teams from two very different, you know, amalgam teams from two different cultures um, and managed to win the World Championship last year while being, you know, not getting... Uh, going off beam from who they are as 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 people and the the collective that they've, they've become over the years, um, you know Paul's a very down to earth guy as well as a very sharp 
uh, business guy and, and a very uh, a very clever bloke, and he's a motorcycle person. He's 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 he can really ride motorbikes. Believe me, we used to do road tests with him when uh, a million years ago when he was first starting out and sponsoring the team, and a boy can just ride and anything you put in front of him. So he fully understands what's going on, um, and he surrounded himself with the right people year after year after year and built into doing to making an amazing team who won the World Championship last year. So it just shows, and it shows it's not just the riders that have a career and a process and your ups and downs and your and your, your backsliding and your, your overachieving to get to where they got to. Um, it's a kind of example of how to go about it, for the, but you've got to be in it for the long haul. Um, and they ended up winning a dealer team, won the World Championship, kind of in a way like Tinkata did. You know, it's different days now from when Tenkata won it, but it's it's. I think it's very heartening to show that people can become this level just because they want to. You know that that to me is the all those people on the team are really motivated because they want to win, positively motivated. I don't think anybody's scared in their jobs. There, you know, I'm not saying anybody else is, but it is a way of doing it that has worked. They have won a world championship, um, and it hasn't been done to me particularly easily. Uh, the path I've done along the way. I have to say though, I I will say this. I I startled, truly startled Paul Denning on the golf course twice in Australia, whatever it was, two years ago, because the only two good shots I hit the whole round were one when I had my back to the hole and putted between my legs and it went straight in, and the other one was when I hit a good <laughs> shot down the drive when my eyes shut. I thought I'm doing so badly, I may as well just shut my eyes. So I closed my eyes and hit the ball, and it was the best shot I'd hit all day. He was surprised at that. I have to say, I was quite slightly shocked the guy, and I've known him a long time. I've never seen him more surprised. I was fairly shocked as well, Gordo, but it just goes to show the natural athlete you are. You're just getting your own way. That's what it Gordo. is. That's what the problem is. That's what the problem is. They've seen Char- Charlie on the golf course in Phillip Island was also a sight, so I'm looking forward <laughs> to trying to get uh, the Phillip Island Classic organised this season. But uh, Don't forget the non-disclosure agreement. Oh, sorry, yes, uh, Charlie's never played golf before. Um... One thing, just before we finish up, it's a little bit unfortunate because we've just ran out of time with everything else that's come in. It was really good to see Michael Vandermark in the Super Bowl race come through from the seventh row of the grid into the points-paying positions. Mikey's been through an awful lot. I think, what, two broken legs this year. That's uh, probably Charlie Hiscott levels of injury-proneness. <laughs> and it was great to see something positive for Mikey. There's an updated BMW potentially coming out this week as well. So we're going to keep our eyes peeled to see what's happening there. And then obviously for Honda as well, we didn't get a chance to touch on Honda too much this week, but uh, we'll try and talk about them a bit more in uh, the three flyaways at the end of the season. And we've got an interview with Jake Gagne. We've got an interview with Michael Rubin Rinaldi for the pod as well coming up. So we're going to try and get a few more riders involved between now and the end of the season. So try and get someone from BMW, Honda, and uh, some of our title contenders as well. We obviously had Top Rack on on the last show as well. So we've got two other guys in the front of the field to get involved in the pod as well. So for everyone that supports us on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast, that makes a big difference for making us have the time to be able to do all those extra interviews. So they go on to Patreon before they go anywhere else. So check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. As it is, we're going to finish the show with a Rental Street Sessions interview with Double Moto America champion Jake Anye. A 
Renthal Street Session interview with Double Motor America champion Jake Gagne. And Jake, this is actually quite a, a fun weekend for everyone because we're able to see you come in as a wild card here in Portimao. And it's very different to the last time we saw you in World Superbikes four years ago. You've obviously had a lot of success in the US again since then, won a lot of races, a couple of championships. And like from the outside looking in, looks like you're a very different rider now compared to when you were last year. Yeah, like you said, a couple of years older, a couple of years more experienced and hopefully a little smarter than I once was, you know, but um, it's really cool. Yeah, it's it's just awesome to be back in this paddock after so long. I mean, you know how it is. Time time flies on by, but in the meantime, we've had some good success in the States and um, we got a great bike and a great team. And I'm, I'm really stoked that we were able to put everything together and get everything shipped over here. You know, it's not easy logistically to get all this to happen, especially only two weeks after our last race, but uh, these guys made it happen. We're here. It's Thursday. The bikes are ready to roll for tomorrow. So, um, yeah, I'm excited to just hit the track. And really, it's hard to have any big expectations or anything. We just want to go have fun, do our job, and enjoy it. Like, actually enjoy being here, not to get too stressed out about it and just do what we love to do. This is very different for Attack. If you compare it to when JD Beach raced in Laguna a few years ago, that was obviously a home track. There was a lot of expectation. He was also racing in Moto America the same weekend. This is from the outside it looks like a real passion project for Richie Stamboli and the team just to make sure that they're able to come here see what happens and if you have a good weekend it's great if you don't you're going to learn a lot anyway and the team's going to learn a lot exactly I mean well put like you said kind of a passion project in a way you know these guys are really passionate about racing you know Richard and all the Yamaha guys everybody at attack and um so that's really the point, you know, we want to, obviously we want to, we want, I want to do everybody proud in Moto America. You know, I feel like I'm, I'm the two time champ now. So I want to make sure I do well for everybody back home and in the series of Moto America, you know, cause we've been growing, it's been getting better and better every year. And, um, so, but at the same time, you know, I'm not putting a lot of pressure on myself. I just want to go out and, and ride like I know how to ride. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, everybody's asked what expectations, this expectations that. And for me, it's, you know, maybe you can ask me that question after a couple practices tomorrow. But until then, man, it's who knows, you know, who knows where we stack up. We'll just try to enjoy it, do our job, go do the best we can. And, um, yeah, see, see how it goes. Let's take it back then to the last time you were here in World Superbikes. That was obviously with Tenkate on the Honda. How different are you now as a person and as a rider compared to back then? I think I've grown a lot, you know, even throughout that year. I learned a ton, you know, and even of course, you know, I got one shot, one year, one shot at it. And, you know, as much as anybody even having the second year on that same bike with the same team, I'm sure I could have came a long way and progressed quite a bit and at least had more experience and knowledge. But since then, um, obviously a couple of years since then, especially these last three years now riding this Yamaha, I've learned more than I ever have in my career. I feel like, you know, from riding on the best I'd say for sure the best bike and the best team proven in the paddock in Moto America for the, for quite a few years now. So, um, you know, I got to learn a lot from my teammate the first year with Cameron Bobier, um, who was the, you know, four or five time superbike champ. And, you know, since then, like you said, I've, I've, I've won a lot of races in the States and, you know, done well, we wrapped up a couple of championships, but I've experienced is, is the most important thing, you know? I mean, yeah, we get older and, um, but I still feel as young as I ever was, you know, and at the same time, my mind is a little bit sharper. I feel like I know what to do a little bit more and it's just, that's experience coming into play. I think that's the most important thing. So yeah, hopefully we'll see this weekend. Obviously enough in Motor America this year, all the attention in Europe was on Petrucci coming mm -hmm. to town and obviously the, the first couple of rounds suited him with Coda tracking notes very well. It suits the Ducati and he was able to hit the ground running. But as the season went on, speaking to the guys over in the Motor America paddock, they all were 
pretty adamant that when we got to the nuts and bolts of the season that it was going to be trickier and trickier going up against you going up against attack with all their their data and the strength yeah. the Yamaha has was always going to be a tight season and that's really how it played out but what was your thoughts on going up against Danilo as well obviously a rider everyone knows MotoGP race winner yeah it was awesome man I mean uh I think I've said it before but I mean having a guy of that caliber come to our series um I was I was motivated more than ever. You know, I wanted to beat the guy, you know, I know he's a badass rider and has done, had a lot of success. And of course for him, man, he came in and jumped in the deep end on this side. You know, I, we've, like I said, I've been on those tracks for years. I've been on that bike for a couple of years and I know, I know it's not easy coming in on new bike, new tires, all these new tracks, a different style of, of racing over there on those tracks really compared to GP, especially, um, but honestly, I thought he did an amazing job. Um, he stepped up to the plate all the time. Of course, he got off to a hot start. I had trouble early in the year. So the points gap at the beginning there was huge. You know, I had a big hole to climb out of and um, climbed out of it, crashed out of a couple wins, had to climb out again. But for me, like looking back, it was a really uh, rewarding to get that championship done. You know, the, the year before that, of course, we, we won a lot of races, kind of dominated the thing, but it was not that easy this year, you know, and not only with Danila, but with my teammate Cam and Matt and all these other guys that really stepped it up. So the racing was, was really, really good. And like I said, it was rewarding, um, really rewarding to kind of get it done and that all the way down to the last race, you know, so that was kind of a new thing for me in my career to bring it all the way down to the end like that. Because obviously you talk about last year, it was almost like you were racing a ghost. You were going up against Bobier's race records, lap records, whereas mm. this year it was a proper scrap for a lot of it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and um, same with over here, every series, man, you know, we, every, the bikes get better every year. The, the riders get better every year. It's like everybody really steps it up. So we're always you can't be satisfied with doing the same thing you did last year, you know, cause everybody else is going to step it up too. And so it's just cool to see that progression. And, um, it makes me excited for the, I mean, I'm always excited to just keep going and keep learning and keep getting better. Cause everybody's going to do the same. And, you know, I'm, I'm contracted to race Moto America again next year. And I think that I, I really think the racing is going to be better than ever, you know, as we get more guys and even more bikes and teams with some of those other guys that are ready to step it up and run with us. And um, so it's for me as a racer, I think it's awesome. and It'll be a lot of fun. And then obviously for this weekend, this is a weekend where you just get to go and have a, a lot of fun. But when you think about where you are now as a rider compared to back then, how much has the confidence of winning so much over the last couple of years really changed you on track, do you think? Um, you know, I guess off track, I mean, I still feel like the same person I ever, I was, you know, I mean, obviously I grow, I learn and, um, like I said, more experience. Um, but everything with that experience, everything kind of comes more naturally. I think you avoid making some of the mistakes that you did when you're younger. Um, so every year, you know, we're a little bit of a new, a new character, but, um, like I said, man, I'm just, I'm excited to be here. This is like, if there's one track in Europe I could pick, it, it'd be this <laughs> one to come racing at, you know. Unfortunately, it worked out kind of perfect with our schedule. Our, our year in the States is done, so we don't have to think about that anymore and just come here and try to do our job and see what happens. Perfect. Thanks very much, Jake. Cheers. Thanks, man. Good luck for the weekend. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.
that's a hard one. He's more, he's entertaining. He's more entertaining than most people. Yes, absolutely. He's always doing his jokes. And I, I saw you. I saw Top Right giving you a wee uh, a wee pre race wash. Actually, I remember in uh, Portimao. That was quite entertaining for me. 